0: Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of The Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network, live on podcast from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. I am your host, Tim McKernan, alongside executive producer John Seymour, also known as The Sea Monster. And welcome in to yet what I think is another damn good interview. Uh, we talk about these things every time we get done, The Sea Monster. Uh, Nick Yale is the one who shoots the video you may see on Twitter or our Facebook page. And if you would, please follow us at uh, McKernan Show or uh, like the Tim McKernan Show on Facebook and uh, subscribe to all of our shows. All you got to do is subscribe one time on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you may podcast and give a positive review if you would, as we're now entering uh, soon to be our third month here, third full month of the uh, Tim McKernan Show. And we've gotten done with all these interviews and every time I'm kind of like, God, that was really Good, but on this one, with former U.S. Senator Jim Talent, Republican from Missouri, served in the U.S. Senate from 2002 through 2006. This is one, if I may candidly tell you, um, I was really concerned about, and my reasoning was I was on maybe three hours of sleep. Well, we had recorded. Well, we always do the Ryan Kelly Morning After Live from seven to ten central in St. Louis. And then I had a conference call for some business stuff at 11 central and uh, Senator talent was scheduled to arrive at 1130 the conference call. Uh, it was poor scheduling on my part. The conference call wasn't close to being over when Senator talent got here. He got here early, which uh, speaks to the way he operates. Whereas I get to late the things. That's why he's a former Senator and I'm, I'm a complete creep. And, and I'm going, Oh my gosh, how am I going to handle this? Cause I don't want to keep the man waiting i've never met him before and uh, he's a highly respected person much less the fact that he's served in the united states senate but meanwhile god bless the sea monster god bless nick uh they kept him company and i walk into the studio after my conference call which i had to cut short uh to do the interview and he was engaged in a full-on description of policy with the sea monster and nick and hell the podcast could have started 10 minutes earlier and would have been just fine because he was already locked and loaded Uh, The reason we had Senator Talon on, outside of the fact that he is a uh, St. Louis native who served in the United States Senate, is because Dave Glover, who you may have heard uh, on an early episode of the Tim McKernan Show, said that he was, in his opinion, the politician who he thinks most of, gives him the most hope, and would love to see run for office again. And so we're like, all right, well, we think Glover is a rational guy. And uh, therefore, I think it'd be good to have Senator Talent in and get his perspective on things. But I was worried that because I was on such short sleep, wasn't good on the show, in my opinion, in the morning and had rushed from business call to run in to do the interview in our podcast studio, that I wasn't going to be very good. So Senator Talent might have been great, but I was going to be terrible Uh, and I'm not sure I was any good. He was just so good that. Um it was it was a fascinating listen. And as the Sea Monster said, and I'm curious what what you all will think, and I always enjoy your feedback at T McKernan at insidestl.com, good or bad. Try not to act like a, a dick if at all possible when conveying your thoughts if they're going to be negative. Uh but uh email all positive, all negative feedback, team McKernan at insidestl.com, um, that it was almost like listening to an engaging lecture in college. Uh, and I, and I know le- lecture can have like a negative connotation and that's not my intent. Um, but it was just so, it was so in my opinion and, and obviously in Seymour's opinion, high level and in depth. And we got into it all. I, I don't think there was a stone left unturned from his major elections, which included major defeats, some surprising ones, the historical context of each one, which is important, including his win, which is important. Uh, his opinion on president Trump, um, and then we really got into what I thought was a really good discussion on religion because he is very passionate about his faith and I am agnostic. And so we got into uh, that discussion, which uh, is at the end of our hour plus conversation. So i um, very pleased with this interview. And like I said, uh, I was really concerned that I wasn't going to do it any justice because I was just off my game. But he was so good that it wound up being, in my opinion, what you will find hopefully, to be a great listen. We always are in the com studios. Ryan Kelly and his team at the HomeLoanExpert.com make this podcast possible, along with our sponsors. And if you are enjoying it, and I'd like to think the quality of work that John Seymour and Nick Yale have been doing on this with the quality of guests and uh, the consistency with which they're done... And uh, social media campaigns and everything that comes with the show, even though we're only in three months in, uh, is a reflection of what we are hoping to continue to do for you throughout 2018. Uh, please support the sponsors. And Ryan Kelly has gotten on board before the thing really even took off, and we are grateful for that. So if you are in the market to buy a home, if you are in the market to refinance your home, take advantage of great rates by going to the I can speak firsthand how good of a guy Ryan is, but also his business continues to grow because of the customer service is second to none and that's why Ryan Kelly and the team at the are the ones we recommend here on the Tim McKernan show. So, former US Senator Jim Talent our guest, take a listen from the homeloneexpert.com studios. Well, this is a pleasure um Dave Glover was in here. And are you on his show on a regular basis? I do it he- on every uh, every Monday now. Okay. I do. I do uh,
1: we tape something. I do about 10 minutes. I have loads of fun with it.
0: That's what he said. And we had him in a couple weeks ago. Dave and I have known each other for a few years, and he was in here about uh, three weeks ago. And I said, the politician I've developed a rapport with uh, is uh, former Senator Jack Danforth. Yeah. And I said, he strikes me as a guy. Now, I don't know if it would work in 2017 with Twitter and having to speak in sound bites because he's certainly deliberate uh, in his messages. So I don't know if it would work in 2017. But I said, he's a guy that I feel like is a good man. Even if I disagree, I feel like he's looking out for the greater good. Uh, And a lot of our audience, certainly when he was on our show, felt the same way. Right. And then Dave, I said, is there anybody, Dave, who you think of in that capacity? Because he was expressing his frustration with politics in 2017. He said, Jim Talent. Jim Talent is the best. I wish he would run again. He is, and he differs from me. This is Dave's words on social issues. But as far as looking out for the greater good and making sense, that's Jim Talent. It was always, I I wanted people to think that about
1: me uh, because... I mean, it's true. I'm not running for anything, so people might believe what I say. Uh, and Jack was one of my models. Jack and uh, a congressman named Tom Curtis, who was well before your time. Uh, now, Jack and, uh, and Mel Carnahan and Kit Bond and Roy Blunt came into Missouri politics at a time uh, when it wasn't as contentious. And so you had an opportunity to drive a brand like that if it was authentic. And they rooted it, deeper in the minds of the voters than I was able to because I came on not so much, well, kind of a generation later. But yeah, that was how I wanted people to think that maybe I was a, on some issues a fool, but I was not a scoundrel.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think if, people respect that.
1: Though. Yeah, if, I, if, if you're authentic in it. I mean, mm-hmm. authenticity is important. That's why I always tell young politicians, I talk to a lot of them. I say, look, uh, you have to go with the style that you're comfortable with even if in theory you might like a different style because you won't do the style you're not comfortable with very well, right? And then you'll come across as inauthentic right. and it won't work. Right. So you have to be who you are and then you try and grow your strengths and minimize your weaknesses over time.
0: How do you think you would fare in 2017 with the way politics is conducted? So much, of course, social media, but then also I do feel like, even though I know it's kind of almost cliche to say it, but it is somewhat short attention span theater, to try and grab people and then advance that particular—I think I could
1: run um, a strong race because uh, my approach to politics was always saying to the voters what I felt I could do for them, not in a very narrow sense. I will cut your particular taxes right. or something, but that I—I uh, I always felt like I had ideas and the ability. Uh, to effectively maneuver with those ideas, to accomplish changes that would make their health care system better over time, their communities safer. Uh, and I think that's a very strong message in politics. I, I think most voters are transactional, although not in a really narrow sense. They're, 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 they understand, you know, they're not they're not inviting you into their family. They're hiring you to do a job, and if they think you can do the job well, I think that's a strong message. Now, I'm not trying to present myself as the greatest politician who ever lived. Mm-hmm. I know a number of people in politics who I was thought were better than I was, but I think I could run a strong race. Uh, one of the things I would have to learn, though, is, is how to take advantage of the new forms of media that are out there mm-hmm. through which people absorb ideas. And I, I don't know that I could do that, uh, but— I would have to learn.
0: You don't tweet much. If you do, it's, it's right. tweeting out a column.
1: Right. Do you look at Twitter? Uh, yes, in the sense— No, I don't follow it myself. People—I see Twitter chains or or they're referred to in a in something I'm reading, or people mm-hmm. will send it to me. Okay. But no, I guess you would say I probably don't so
0: follow Twitter. So you're not, Twitter. like, scrolling on no. your phone for the latest? No, I don't okay. do that. Yeah.
1: And I obviously would have to. I mean, one of the mistakes people make when they get into politics, and, and this happens— when they're moving from one level to another more often is because they've been comfortable, become comfortable with their style and and their approach to campaigning on one level. And they think the higher level is just doing that bigger. Yeah. And it's not. OK, see, I learned that the first time I ran statewide. I did not run a great race for governor. It was OK.
0: You're citing 2000,
1: 2000. And it was because I thought it was a race for Congress times nine. OK, it's not. And it's what's a the difference? different animal? Uh, well, you know, for one thing, y- y- you have to you have to manage your time in a much more disciplined way because you're going. It's a big state, and you've got to cr- got to get across the state. You you cannot, in my opinion, personalize the campaign as much as you could with a congressional race, and you can't personalize a congressional race as much as you could a state legislative race because the districts are bigger.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, you have to get used to the fact that when you start running statewide. Um, it it draws national attention. So there's uh, when I ran for Congress, the vast majority of the money that that was spent in the race would be either my or me or my opponent would spend. Uh, when I ran for the Senate, it was it was a race of international importance, and that was in two thousand two and two thousand six. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now you know the, the most of the money spent by people you don't control. In fact, you may not even talk to them. So there's a whole lot of things that are different and that's okay. You just have to know that. And so, no, you have to, you have to grow. It's like moving to any other job, you know, where where you're, where you're moving up in your career, Mm -hmm. there are areas you have to grow. And a lot of people resist that because it's, it's frightening to them. And so they just do it the way they've always done it. And it doesn't work as well.
0: When Dave said, here's a guy who gets it common sense. Do you feel like that is part of the arena of politics right now?
1: Uh, no, uh, or or certainly less so than it used to be. I don't think that's because of the voters. (laughs) Again, my view of voters is that they are, they, they want the people who will do the best for their families, their communities and the things they care about. Okay. And at least the decisive element of voters in any particular race. But, uh, if, if, you don't. If you don't have a candidate who's appealing effectively based on that, then the race defaults to other things. And uh, we've had too many default races, I think, recently. Not enough people presenting ideas in a powerful way, okay? You can't talk about them abstractly. You you have to show people why it matters to them. And if you do that, I think that's very powerful. But, see, that's my theory, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And I, I freely admit that, you know, whether you talk to uh, – Talk to a Karl Rove or the people who ran Obama's campaigns. You know, they'll tell you something. They may very well tell you something different.
0: I asked uh, Senator Danforth when he was kind enough to come here, if there was somebody right now who he sees as the up-and-coming politician, so to speak, or maybe somebody who's already established, uh, who enthuses him, who gives him some optimism for the future, um, before revealing his answer, assuming you didn't listen to our interview, of course. Uh, who is there somebody that, that that's... Stands out to you in Missouri? Well,
1: anywhere, but yeah, well, Missouri. Look, would be... he's running in a race, and I don't, you know, this is I'm, this is not an interview about the Senate campaign. I do like Josh Hawley. That's who I'm, he sided. I, I, I think... have
0: a feeling that was the direction you would go. That's who yeah, he sided. I think he's a huge fan of his, as you know,
1: right? Uh, and Josh is in it for the right reasons. That's another thing that's really important. That I also tell people is if you are going to get into politics, make up your mind at the beginning that. Uh, the object is to serve. Okay, You have to have a servant's heart. And you have to decide that because everything will lure you in the direction of making it about you. And if it becomes about you, then, you, th- then you're going to go down all kinds of roads without realizing it. And you're going to end up doing the opposite of what you set out to do. Mm-hmm. So you have to make a conscious decision. Now, that doesn't mean that's not an ideological statement because— your idea of serving the people well could take you down the road of left wing policy or right wing policy or whatever but the idea is to is to make is is to make government more effective for the people who have elected you however you believe that should be done um so you know i think if and i think josh has
0: that mm-hmm. i am i'm curious for you personally how the how the road took you there my parents were very
1: unusually above average in terms of their interest in politics. And so they talked a lot about politics. Both conservative? Uh, yes. My father wasn't when he married my mother, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he changed.
0: She's a good lobbyist.
1: Uh, and, uh, so I, I was in, and I read about, you know, issues. I did a little grassroots political work, the young Republicans kind of thing. And, um, after I'd been out of law school a couple of years, a, uh, a friend of mine who was in the legislature called me up and said, look, you're looking for an apartment. Why don't you move into the Baldwin-Chesterfield area because that legislative district is coming open and you can run. And uh, I did. And I'd say, I never planned real far ahead. Uh, I don't believe in that. You sort of think about the next step. But I think one of the problems people have in office now, and I... That's another area I'm constantly admonishing them. Do the job you have. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, for, for one thing, the best way to get a better job in, in government or a higher job is to be good at the job you're doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that when you run, you can actually talk about the things you've done that have made a difference for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I focused on the job I had. But, uh, yeah, when when things opened up, if I had a chance to will influence at a higher level and, and and do more good, as I saw it, yeah. When it, particularly when I was young, you know, full of piss and vinegar, uh-huh. as they say Absolutely. I was uh,
0: I was willing to do that. And what did you find when you first won elected office? Became policies that you were passionate about. Uh, I I wanted
1: to. I mean, j- certain areas. Even then, I was developing infrastructure was a big thing for me. Um, See, I believe, I know you probably want to get a little bit into philosophy, but if you want to, if you want to capsulize uh, my philosophy, uh, it's that there there are only a limited number of things the government should do, but it should do those things well and vigorously, okay? Because in a well-ordered society, you want to meet the needs of everybody to the extent that you can, right? But you have... Different parts of society have responsibility for meeting different needs, right? So people need a job. They need wealth to live on. That's basically the private economy's job. Mm-hmm. People need emotional support, right? That's the family. Uh, but there are things only government can do. And at minimum, it should do those things and do them well. So infrastructure, you know, was one. Mm-hmm. I was, even in those days, very interested in driving um an economic policy that helps small business because small business drives the economy. It's how people relate to the broader capitalistic system. So there were certain trends that were emerging even then. But mostly I just like the legislature. I have a legislative personality. I have a collegial personality. I get along well with people. I like people. Mm -hmm. And I remember a guy had been in the legislature a long time. He was a mentor of mine. And um, I was leaving run for the Congress, and somebody was saying some nice things about me. That's what they do. I was a Republican leader at the time. And the Democrats all stood up and applauded me. And he lo- he, lo- he leaned over and he said, Jim, it helps a lot if they like you. Wow. And I have really found that to be true. And one of the things I say to voters is, be careful that you don't push for reforms of legislative processes that separates the members from each other so they can't form those personal bonds. Like I used to go when I was the the minority leader, the Republican leader, I would go once or twice a week after the session was over to the majority leader's office and I'd sit with him and a number of the senior Democrats and I'd have a drink. And we'd talk for half an hour, 45 minutes. And people, now if the press wanted to take that, oh, they're in there sitting in their offices drinking, right? But that was hugely important and they really appreciated
0: that. Danforth, actually, he said, he said one of the things when he arrived in D.C. was they used to hang out. They used to socialize. I recall Mm -hmm. reading, I mean, what I know, that some of the criticisms of of President Obama, not even regarding from a policy standpoint, were that he was either perceived as aloof, arrogant, and didn't really associate, and therefore it was tough to develop a bond. And so then later you would see him playing golf with uh, John Boehner. But uh, that now you don't have uh, congressmen and women socializing and therefore they become numbers and or faceless names and that causes difficulty in trying to increase bipartisanship is that a narrative or do you buy into it
1: no I think it it's a growing problem the pressures from a lot of things okay so the immediacy of politics which means you know used to be the off-year was the off-year now you still did some politics but you could focus on other things. Now, the campaign really never stops. So that's a time suck. Mm-hmm. You have to spend mm-hmm. a lot more time raising money. So part of it is just they don't have the time to do it. Part of it is uh, they come home more often. Now, I came home every weekend for family reasons, and I also, it was my belief that you really need to invest time in being in the district and in the state, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but uh, one of the downsides of it is I was not there on the weekends to socialize. Um, well, let me give you an example when I talk about – got to be careful about process reforms. Now, I'm not and – I, and I did not travel much in the Congress, I did, and I never took junkets, okay? And no, we don't want people on the tax paradigm going to Palm Springs for the ag conference, <laughs> right? But congressional travel is an opportunity for people to get to know each other. So if you're on the plane together and you're going over to uh, Iraq – to talk to CENTCOM, you got to talk to each other on that plane. I mean, that's it's it's a good thing, and the same thing for staff. If it's a legitimate purpose, it's good to get them out of Washington, talking with each other, getting to know each other, forming some bonds. The gym is another. I would not shut down the congressional gyms, even though, yes, it is a perk, okay? But you work out in the gym with people. I got to know Ron Wyden that way. And Wyden and I then went out and did infrastructure bonding together. So, I just say to voters, look, I'm not, I, I'm, I was never a perk guy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not into that. But some encourage if you want bipartisanship, people to work together. They got to get to know each other.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a fascinating element of the whole discussion because people now have gotten to a point where they sense that if they were to work with Somebody from the other side of the aisle that it could cost them an election. Now I don't know if that's real or not, but I feel like that is the sense. Do you? I don't sense look. That? I think the
1: voters are still very open to that. Um, I think it is harder to do now, uh, in a way that will not be seized upon by influencers mm-hmm. who then say you're selling out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think the average voter, quote unquote,
0: uh, I think would be fine with that.
1: I don't know how many rabbit holes you want me to go down. One of the the big problems. I
0: enjoy rabbit holes. You're welcome to go down as many as you would like.
1: One of the big challenges in the Congress now is uh, the Senate filibuster rule, which Mm -hmm. was a good thing in its day, is combined with changes in politics, is making it so difficult to do anything that voters on both sides of the aisle get so frustrated at the inaction that they start inferring things like they have to, there has to be some conspiracy. There has to be something behind this because they never do anything. And uh, I really believe that rule has to be limited. In today's climate, in theory, I understand it and it worked in its day, but I think it needs to be, it needs to be reformed. And I think a lot of senators believe that. I think we're moving gradually in that
0: direction. What do you think the solution would be to reforming it?
1: Well, it's hard because you don't want the Senate to operate the way the House operates. But I think some set of rules where it is possible to to delay, okay, but it's not as extreme as it is today. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have gone on this rabbit hole because it would take the whole hour. But <laughs>
0: no, you know, like I said, that's why I love podcasts. We can go as far as you want, in whatever direction you want.
1: Right. And the other thing is, if you if you if if the leadership would take up issues where there is a greater degree of bipartisanship to begin with. And would mix those in with the bills where they know everybody's going to fight on it. That's what we used to do in the legislature. I mean, I would talk to the speaker and the majority leader, and you knew you were going to have a knockdown, dragout fight over Bill X. So the next bill on the calendar ought to be the annexation bill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, it's it's just your views on annexation do not depend on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, right? So mix in what they're doing on Obamacare with the infrastructure bill, with civil forfeiture reform. With things where, you know, Republicans and Democrats are going to
0: be on both sides of this, and they have a chance
1: to work together.
0: Philosophically, one of the things that I feel like a lot of my friends say, many of whom would consider themselves Republican, is, and I feel like it's almost become, speaking of cliches, as I said earlier, I'm socially liberal, I'm fiscally conservative. Right. When you hear that, what is your reaction as Republican? And is that something that's limited perhaps to younger people saying that, or it's in a cop-out, or... Yeah, well, I, I I would probably when I when I
1: see labels, and I know you, you and from the questions, you you're, you're, you may get a little bit into that. I, I do think you have to ask, you have to get underneath the labels a little. I have no problem with labels. A lot of politicians resist that. What I do have a problem with, and always did, is people in thinking a label means something different than I think it means. So now they actually have the wrong view of, of me and what I thought. If people are going to know what I believe and what I want to do and decide they want to vote against me, that's fair enough. Yeah,
0: I see what you're saying. But
1: if because I've called myself a conservative or a classic conservative or whatever, they think that means something different than I meant. So now they're voting against me for something I don't believe. That's a problem. So I would go underneath it. I would probably say, what do you mean by, you know, socially liberal and why? And I think what usually you find is, is that there's a lot of the sentiments are shared, but people value the interests. They weigh the interests involved differently, mm-hmm. right? So let's just jump into a hot issue, abortion, okay? I think most Americans on both sides of this divide believe there is an interest in protecting the life of the, we'll call it what, you know, the unborn child or the grown or whatever. And they believe, yes, having to have a child at the wrong time in your life, uh, causes hardship. I mean, it's not a small thing, right? So both interests are important and need to be balanced. But people, and this is a question of their instincts and their orientations, et cetera, they may weigh the interests differently. And so they, they recognize both of them, but they weigh them differently and come out on different sides. And then you start to see, you know, that person's, they're not crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they see they, they their experience, their temper, their view causes them to think this is greater interest than I think it is.
0: I feel like, again, this is a feel and I'm curious what your response is to the, the read, so to speak, is that in the primary season, I think most Americans are paying attention to politics in particular in those even number presidential election years. And they see on on the Republican side in the primaries seeing the candidates have it to go further right than perhaps they normally would, and then saying some things that when it goes to the general, they're in a tough spot to then have to own their words when they were trying to win the nomination. And that, of course, can go on the left side where Hillary Clinton was— going up against Bernie Sanders, and he was presenting what you were discussing before we started, presenting a bunch of problems, but then when he would talk solutions, they weren't really pragmatic right. applications of a solution, and so she was fighting a battle that really was going to be difficult to win. So it cuts both ways. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. And it was,
1: it's always been there. Yeah. And part of the skill, look, it takes skills to be a politician, it takes skills to be a radio. I mean, it's, I'm not bragging about that. It's just, it's it's a, it's a skill set. Uh, maybe not a particularly honorable skill set. Yeah. But it's
0: a You're skill talking set. about mine now, I
1: know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I used to tell people, well, you know, they asked, what did you do before you were in politics? I said, well, when I had semi honest work, I was a lawyer. Uh, you know, you make, you make jokes about it. Uh, but part of the skill of it is in your issue selection, both in the primary and the general, and in ho- how you learn to talk about issues in such a way that you can appeal to and energize your base without at minimum alienating the middle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you're an honorable politician, you have to do all that without lying and without being inauthentic. Now there's a difference between putting your best foot forward and being inauthentic. When you do a job interview for a job you really want, you are in a sense, you're presenting the best side of yourself you can present you're not lying about who you are right Mm -hmm. and so you know when you're a candidate if you want to be good you have to develop the skills to do all this within the limits of conscience and honor and it's hard so a lot of people get under pressure and they end up lying and then having to flip later on or they may say things in too extreme a form you know throwing out too much red meat in the primary and then that comes back and haunts them and in some sense. That just means the process is weeding out the people who aren't as good
0: right yeah you uh, does that make any sense yeah it does and, and that and that's the that's a shame of it because I, I look back on a few elections here I suppose I can go back to 2008 that's what then the, I can just try and picture the, the numerous candidates and a lot of people who I think would have competed quite well in the general didn't even get off the ground in, in the primaries I
1: wouldn't overestimate that I mean the, the the races where that happens are very high profile but remember there's a whole lot of races you're not seeing as much you got people like Corey Gardner who was on the Republican side, it was great at both. And there are examples on both sides of the aisle. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. Okay, so uh, I've always uh, be- uh, believed that gun control, what most people mean by term gun control, uh, if, if the government were to implement it, would actually increase violence because it would keep firearms away from normal, you know, from adults, law-abiding adults for law-abiding purposes, Right. And I believe that um, since the time I was in the legislature. Now, if I'm talking to a Second Amendment group, I may talk about that more in constitutional terms, which is perfectly legitimate. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms, in my opinion. And uh, I think that's what the text says, and I think that's what the history says. If I'm talking in a coffee in West St. Louis County, I may emphasize more the practical downsides of gun control, which is also perfectly legitimate. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm asked at that coffee, well, do you think there's a Second Amendment? Right. Sure. I'm not going to lie. But when I, you know, insofar as I'm choosing to communicate about that issue to that group, I'm choosing the honest argument that I think will be the most persuasive with them. Right. Yeah. See, that's to me what the skilled, honorable politician does. Uh, And it's hard. You have to be prepared. You have to both on the issue and on how you're going to how you're going to communicate. You need to think. And a lot of people, you know, don't do their preparation, don't think out their ideas and then they get in trouble.
0: You said earlier on uh Senator that, that when you look at some politicians, you clearly were successful, but you see some other people, go, Oh, they're, they're better than me on both sides. If you uh-huh. don't mind naming names, who are some where you looked at them and go, wow, wow. he or she was really good at politics. Well, I'll, or tell, is you, really I'll good.
1: tell you, uh, the best national politician, just in terms of his political skills, I ever saw was Bill Clinton. And I'll I'll tell you a story in connection with that. So the Pope comes to visit uh, in uh, St. Louis. 99, yeah. Right. And um, he flies into Lambert Airport, which was my legislative district. So State Department protocol meant you have to invite the local congressman. So they invite me. And I go and uh, I'm there with other dignitaries. And then the president comes in and the Pope came in after the president. So it's interesting. Presidents wait for nobody but Popes. (laughs) I'm
0: going to put that on my flow chart.
1: (laughs) And uh, President Clinton came in. And of course, I knew him. I didn't know him well, but I knew him. And we were all around. uh, It was a rectangular set of tables that been pushed together without much room on the outside of the tables. And we were all standing outside. I don't know why they set it up that way. So the president comes in with his party, which is a number of congressmen he'd flown in with and senators Mm -hmm. and, and uh, Mrs. Clinton. And they go walking around the table, shaking hands with everybody who's who's leaning against the walls. And uh, Hillary gets to me and sort of gives me, because like a few months before I voted to impeach her husband. Okay. So I wondered how he was going to handle it. (laughs) And I was the only one in the room who had. So she kind of gives me the cold eye and just goes by. He comes up, vigorously shakes my hand, leans back against the table, crosses his arms together. He's got a twinkle in the eye. And he proceeds to talk to me for like five to seven minutes. And he says, you know, your Lewis and Clark centennial is coming up. And I just read this tremendous book about this. So he's talking to me, and I mean, when Bill Clinton focused on you, he's magnetic, right? And then he goes on and talks to everybody else. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know why he did that? Because I was the one person in the room he didn't already have with him. Hmm. And that's not, I don't think he planned it. I, I, that's his instincts, cutting in, see. He's, he's a great politician yeah. and, you know, by his lights uh, was a pretty good president in terms of figuring out the job. And, and this will take us in another rabbit hole. But one of the problems with our system is that uh, particularly the presidency is people run for the presidency and they're often very able people. But we don't we have no system for training them in what the president is actually actually does. I mean, in the Romney camp. I mean, I got into the presidential politics a lot.
0: You were on the Romney campaign in...
1: Uh, in 08 and 12. Okay. I mean, I, I dedicated myself to electing Mitt. And I still believe, and I know many people and a lot in my party, uh, you know, couldn't cotton up to Romney. And I get that. But I'm in terms of my approach to politics, who would actually have produced for this country? There is no question in my mind from the moment I met him. But anyway, I mean, people don't understand. If you said if you said to these candidates, "Give me a thirty-second description of what the president does," they couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, and the smartest they able one. If you ask them questions like, "Is, you know, is is the White House staff, um, part of or uh, 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 give me your opinion of the executive office of the presidency and the White House staff?" Well, the White House staff is part of the executive office. They wouldn't know that. And it's not their fault. I mean, I, not in particular their fault. And I used to say to Romney, look, the, the the president's job is to identify priorities in a disciplined way. And the priorities should be an intersection of, what, of, of the most pressing needs of the country as a whole with your own agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then you have to be self-aware enough about the tools available to the president, both formal and informal, to build coalitions that are sufficiently strong enough to get your priorities done that in my view is the presidency yeah okay and i've watched one after another after another over the years mess up not because they're dumb but because they didn't not having a clear understanding of the job they didn't understand where they had to prepare and what they had to learn until they'd been in it long enough that they learned by trial and error. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Because I would imagine you would say Bill Clinton's second term was
1: Well, he figured it out, right. see, after about two years. Mm-hmm. And he and he, and and so and he figured out how, we can talk about the Clinton presidency if you want. But a lot if you look at, at Trump, and I think Trump's done a pretty good job. I mean I've said that to Dave. I'm not and I supported first Walker and then Rubio and then Cruz, you know. <laughs> Uh, but I, if you look at the, where, where the areas was, for example, is the failure to get appointments out on a timely basis. Well, the reason that's important is, is that having your own people in these positions is one of the vital tools. Remember, I talked about tools mm-hmm. you have to have to build the coalitions you mm-hmm. need. Mm-hmm. Presidents need to manage the Congress. I talked to Romney, you can't coerce the Congress, not for long. And you shouldn't ignore the Congress. You have to manage the Congress, which means... You, you have to understand what tools you have to do that. That's the hardest part of the job. And it's the part where they repeat, Obama just gave up, right? Obama said, I'm going to govern with a pen and a phone. Right. And it's been the hardest part for Trump. So and a lot of it is they just, in my opinion, they don't have a clear understanding of the basic job description.
0: When you say you uh, believe Trump has done a good job, what is it that you like that he's done in his first year? Uh, I think
1: he's uh, – Trump's strengths have really helped him in certain areas, okay? And remember what what I say most people in politics or in life is everybody's strength is also their weakness. So everybody has natural strengths. And insofar as they're in a job or they're dealing with a project where their strengths are particularly important, they tend to do very well, right? Mm -hmm. When they get into other domains where, where their weaknesses are a bigger factor, they tend to do not so well. Right. So and we saw that in the campaign. It's Trump's tremendous strength is is his ability to connect with voters, his authenticity. And he understood the new era of media and like those debates better than the others did. And, and that played to his strengths. Well, anyway. So, for example, I think his regulatory reform agenda has been outstanding. He understands because I've said this for years and years that the biggest drag on the economy is not taxes, although that's a problem. It's the cost of, of government regulations and the uncertainty it creates that keeps people from investing and growing, okay? And, by the way, that opens up a potential area of bipartisan cooperation because one of the things I wanted to say to the Democrats I did when I was there and admitted when I wanted to say to them is, look, the government needs revenue. You agree with that. I agree with that, Okay. And we have to get the economy going. Now, if we cut taxes, we tend to lose revenue, which you don't like, mm-hmm. right? But if we can reform regulations, it is is effectively a tax cut, but we don't lose any revenue. So can we start looking at that? And Trump's done that. I mean, he's very effective. His movement of the capital, which on the Glover show, I think I did this on Dave's show, his movement of the capital of Jerusalem should have been done years and years ago. And it took somebody with the strength. And the audacity of Trump not to listen to all the experts who, you know, well, you shouldn't do this. And just say, look, it's the capital of the country. It ought to be where our embassy is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in those areas, I I mean, it's a lot of areas I think he's done very well. I I think Trump is right to focus more on immigration policy. And I think he was right to sense the people believed uh, that Washington was set in immigration policy without regard for their interests. Every area of of the government, this is why I talk about being a servant, every area of the government, you ought to at least try to have policies that advance the interests of your people. That's that's all you're authorized to do, okay? Uh, And so I think these are tremendous strengths. I think the areas, but his strength is also his weakness, right? So he dives into Twitter. And uh, he's more interested in projecting the sentiment than choosing the particular words. And sometimes that gets him into trouble. Do
0: you know that 90% of homeowners in Missouri escrow their premium with their mortgage and have no idea what they're paying or what they're covered for? Call James Carlton today to protect your biggest asset. James Carlton of the Carlton Insurance Agency, a state farm insurance agency. Agent. His phone number is 314-961-4800. That's 314-961-4800. Or go online at carltoninsurance.net. Call James, and he very well may be able to not only get you better coverage, but start saving you money. In fact, he often can include $100,000 in life insurance without even increasing your payment. The switch is easy. They do all the work for you. It just takes one phone call or apply online at carltoninsurance.net. You need insurance anyway. Why not make sure that you're doing business with somebody who's local, prides himself in being local, and then also somebody who goes out of their way to support the community. Plus, I can speak to firsthand the quality of what James has done with all of the awards the agency has received, but also his staff. He has a big staff, and he does that to make sure that the customer service is outstanding. It's carltoninsurance.net. You may not even notice it. but premiums are going up. Make sure you have the best deal and support the sponsors. And people do business with James because they like and trust him. You can just check out the reviews on Google and Facebook. This guy knows what he's doing. It's why they receive the awards that they do. They're online at carltoninsurance.net or give them a call. James Carlton, 314-961-4800. One of the things Dave and I were debating was whether or not there's a strategy to the whole thing. In other words, some kind of metagame. Look over here while I go over here and do some some work, and I'll talk about Colin Kaepernick kneeling or something along those lines on Twitter, and everybody will talk about that. And meanwhile, I'll tend to some business here. Now, Dave was of the opinion that, that that's giving him too much credit, what do you think?
1: Well, I think it's a it's, it's concept I learned in, in in the on the Armed Forces Committee and in dealing with the military, which I think is very useful to apply here. Okay, so there's different levels of operations in thinking. There's the strategic, the highest order strategic of matching, choosing ends and matching means to that. There's operations, which is very high order ground operations below that. So, you know, D-Day was an operation. The strategy was... We're going to, we're going to defeat the German armies and overthrow Hitler, the operation. And then you have tactics, which is, you know, the skirmish type, lower level things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of what you just mentioned on a tactical level in Washington. So I don't think there's any question. I don't, I hope nobody thinks I'm accusing the Democrats of anything when I say that the whole Al Franken thing went off the way it did, in part because of tactical maneuvering with regard to the Alabama race. I mean, does anybody not believe that? So there was a case where the Democrats were doing something which was a sexual, you know, had to do with sexual harassment policy, which had tactical implications for other things they wanted. Mm -hmm. On that level, yes, I think Trump's doing that and almost everybody else is doing that. If you think, though, that on the strategic level, there is some kind of deep plan I'm afraid there, I mean, I wish there was. <laughs> it's like when people say movies about the CIA and 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 they, you know, we want to find so-and-so and they push some buttons and immediately this picture of this person comes up and they've traced them and then they have this helicopter heading out in 15 <laughs> seconds to get them. And, and it's, you know, what I say to people, gee, I wish the CIA, <laughs> you know, gee, I wish we could do that. But people in Washington do not on a strategic level plan. And it's one of the huge issues you and your with your radio team and yours you probably have strategic planning sessions it's a it's a huge it's one of the reasons i was so successful in the congress because i plan you plan and in the land of the blind even the one-eyed man is king right, right? so even <laughs> a little bit of planning and i could go on and that's so that's a huge part of the problem they mm-hmm. don't identify what are we trying to achieve and why and then have a plan to achieve it they sort of react
0: I, when, when we're looking back on your elections, 2000, 2002, and 2006 would be the ones I would want to focus on. Yeah. When you go back and look at those three, what stands out to you about the, the gubernatorial race in 2000, winning in 2002, and then and then losing to Senator McCasper? The governor's
1: race closed with this tragic uh, episode that was at the same time, uh, you know, what lawyers Glover and I would call sui generis. It presented us with something that was totally unique from a political perspective with Mel's death.
0: October 2000, yeah, two nobody, weeks before election day?
1: All these seasoned political candidates on both tickets, none of us knew how to handle that. What What do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were, depending on how close we were personally to Mel, we also were feeling personal grief. I mean, John Ashcroft, known Mel Carnahan, and much closer to him than I had, had been and uh, felt a lot of person. I felt terrible for Gene and the kids. So you're dealing with that. Uh, and then you also you don't know how the voters are going to view it. So should I start campaigning yeah, the did day you after pump the, the brakes on, Yeah, I mean, I don't want, do, want the voters right. to think I'm being disrespectful, but at the same time, this is important to them. In other words, it's, you know, I, one thing that Bob Holden and I both agreed on is it was damned important which of us got elected to, to the people, which of us got elected, right? Yeah. We had different opinions about who ought to get elected. So, and it's also your job and your responsibility as the leader of the ticket, you know? And it's, and on a personal level, you've been campaigning for a year and a half. You know, you don't want now. Now you're in the red zone, the time leading up. So we didn't know when to start resuming campaigning. And the Democrats, and this was tactically a very smart thing to do, they played up, uh, the sympathy and affection for Mel uh, and use that to lift their whole ticket. So it was a very extremely awkward as well as grief stricken time. And, uh, you know, from my standpoint, I'd been ahead.
0: You were ahead when that happened. That's yeah. what I was wondering. And
1: my poll, my numbers went down and I was behind. And then I was about three weeks out. And then as we started going to the election and the bubble started shrinking, I started creeping back up again. And I almost felt like, you know, there's not a lot that I could do. I was either going to get above 50% by the time. The I think I would have won that election if it had been a week later. Wow! And again, it wasn't because I ran that great a campaign. But I did talk about issues that I think were relevant to people. And I did communicate to them the idea that I think that there was at least a decent chance that this talent guy, who we didn't know all that well, might be able to make state government work better for us.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's what it comes down to the soft remember elections are always decided by soft voters.
0: Soft voters meaning in the middle people who
1: are 55 45 yeah. one way or the other. Right. So they're decided by people who said, well, I don't there's a lot I don't like about that town. I can't cotton up to him, you know. But maybe he'll you know, maybe he actually can get some I'll I'll take a chance on him. Or no I mean, you know, he's just, I can't relate to him, and he talks too much. I don't really believe, you know, bingo, right? And this is why these presidents who win re-election and think now, and both Obama and Bush did, they won re-elections by narrow margins, and they thought, I'm the new FDR. The people love me. No, they didn't. (laughs) They grudgingly gave you a second term with considerable doubt. And maybe you better address what those doubts are. Mm-hmm. But they all think that... Remember, this is a, a note of reality I try and introduce with people. Okay, so I I was in four close races. And and the most... I, I won one by 3%, lost one by 2.5%, and, and the others were closer than that. Wow. Okay. So think about what that means. That means a switch, an actual switch, not somebody deciding not to vote, of one out of 50 voters flips all those elections. One out of 50. Gosh. Okay? So, and that's a healthy sign. In a healthy, mature democracy, you have you achieve a political equilibrium. So, you you should not have, I mean, it's not a good thing to have wild swings all the time. Right? It, it indicates an instability that's probably not good. Mm-hmm. So, Obama's, for, and he did win a substantial victory over McCain. And how much was it by? Like 8%? So that's, that's one out of 20. Wow, mm. oh, that's amazing. So you're not, I mean, you just can't, yes, you have a base of people who are really, to this day, I have people come up to me all the time. I just loved you. I wish, and I'm sure there are people, they're they're too polite to say so, who come up to me and say, geez, I'm glad you're out of office. <laughs> I mean, you suck. And that's a significant portion of the electorate, yeah. but it's not the decisive portion, okay? Yeah. So you can't think because you win an election that the people
0: have declared you God, okay? Because they haven't. You did win in 2002, special election, and you defeated Mel Carnahan's this widow, widow. Gene, Gene Carnahan. Which was awkward for both of yeah. us. Yeah. Um, I think the reason,
1: uh, the, a lot of it also, when you win or lose, particularly close elections, it's the environment. It's the domain you're in. So people, again, think it's my skills. You know, it was a very security conscious, because 9-11 had happened. Right. And I uh, had a history of dealing with defense issues. Armed, I've been on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, and it played to my strengths, and less so to Jean's. to be fair. Mm-hmm. right? So um, I think that's probably the reason I was able to beat her, despite the uh, deep affection people had uh, and continued to have for her and the Carnahan family. And I... Yeah, I'm not an attack politician, okay? Which was good in that race because mm-hmm. people yes. people knew I, I I respected her. I did not want to go after Gene, and, and and they knew that was sincere on my part. I wasn't controlling myself. I didn't want to do that to her. Um, and so I was able to win that. And then four years later, the environment had changed, and uh, people the Iraq War was very unpopular, and Bush was unpopular, and the reason was people sensed he wasn't listening to them. And I had a focus group about a month out of independence and a woman stood up there and said, you know, she said, I really like Senator talent. It's just a shame he's running this cycle because I'm going to send a message to president Bush. Mm. And this is why I say, we're saying before you came in, I have a lot of, I think voters act rationally on mass in terms of how they define their interests. And the reason politicians get upset with him is they wanted to find their interests for the voters. Mm-hmm. That woman, and he they were, she was right. The president had been going along too too long with Rumsfeld and others. He needed to switch policies on the ground. And you notice the day after the election, he fires Rumsfeld, and then he he relooks at the policy, does the surge, and we end up winning the war. Now, we subsequently gave it away. It worked. OK, so I don't begrudge those voters that I mean, I, she was making a perfectly rational decision based on where she was coming from.
0: So much of 2006 when you talk about Jim Talent 2006 is the stem cell. Yeah. Discussion. How much of that do you believe factored in? Because as you made reference to, clearly the climate was much different than 2002 and didn't necessarily favor you or any Republican at that point but specific, that became a national topic and certainly became a, a statewide well, topic.
1: You know, if you, you can go back if you want to talk to the numbers people who, you know, the people who crunch numbers and who might have a better view than I do. I was never a numbers cruncher, okay? I have trouble reading the, um, the breakouts on polls, you know, the, the, uh, the cross tabs and all that stuff. But from my perspective, I don't think it directly impacted many votes, but I, what it did do Uh, and the Democrats used this quite effectively, was it took me off message. So I wasn't able... A lot of campaigning is is being able to talk about what you want to talk about. Right. It's who's controlling the issue matrix or the message matrix. Uh, I didn't want to talk about the stem cell slash cloning. Um, And... and, the, you know, the press was very good at this. They would bring this up everywhere I went. And I felt I answered the questions well. And I think most people felt, even who disagreed with me, that I was reasonable about it. So I don't think I lost a lot of votes. I wouldn't have lost otherwise.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of people who weren't going to vote for me anyway. Oh, because this is the issue of the day. So they talk about this. But it did take me off message. So I couldn't talk, talk about what, what I want to talk about, the renewable fuel standard, you know, which I'd passed. Uh, the, the things that I had done in the Senate, the sickle cell disease bill I'd passed. Yeah, I want to talk about those things, mm-hmm. what I'd done for Missouri, and they got me off. So it was a smart political tactic, yeah. smart of them to put it on the ballot. Um, You know, in any race, you have things that advantage you and things that disadvantage you.
0: Did that? Did any of these elections, you look back on a Ah, uh, it seems like you have a very healthy self-awareness, I suppose. Not that I'm in a position to psychoanalyze, but but you recognize the circumstances and therefore don't go, yeah, this fr-, like there's not a lot of attack. There's just like inner awareness of the circumstances in yourself. Part of the
1: advantage of not running on personality is that you don't take the result personally. And I, I see, again, I'm a believer that voters, it's rarely a personal decision on the part of voters. Uh, and they are smart enough to know that they don't really know you as a person. They they, they they try to judge certain basics. You know, they don't want somebody who's terrible and they'd love it if they got, you know, Abe Lincoln. But they're, they tend not to believe that you're in either extremes. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a personal decision with them. I never ran. To, I never ran. Said, "Oh, vote for Jim Talent because he is God's gift to the Republic." Okay, no. So I didn't take the victories as some enormous personal endorsement. I mean, they're gratifying, but I, and I didn't take the defeats as a personal rejection. And I think that helps a lot. You also just need a sense of perspective about life. I mean, as good as you are, the radio business would go on if you weren't in it. It's not like it's going to stop <laughs> and the Republic has managed to stagger along the last 11 years without Jim talent in elective office. Hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Right. So, and you just, you know, it's just important in life. I remember, um, after I won the Senate race, I, and I did in my victory speech, I, you know, extended my, uh, my respect, um, uh, to Gene, And I said, look, because everybody's celebrating. I said, I I know what it's like to lose. And I've never been, on election night, you know, I'm happy when I win or Republicans win. But there's a part of me that's also saying, what about the people on the other side who've worked so hard, and you see the pictures of them crying? I've been there. Okay, I do feel for them. Um, And I think you, so win or lose, you need, and, and then when I lost, look, this is an election. This is not, God forbid, your child getting a serious illness, mm-hmm. right? This is not your marriage breaking up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is not Hurricane Katrina. This is an election, and it really will go on. Um, that's, I think, something that I'd like to convince both parties' bases of. Okay, that I, I just. The country's there are there are long-term trends and problems that very deeply concern me about the fate of the country. It's one of the reasons I'm working so hard to get a military rebuild. I think we're vulnerable. I'm deeply concerned something's going to happen that's really, really bad.
0: Okay? You're passionate about bioterrorism, are you not?
1: Uh, yeah, I did uh, commission. There's just so many areas people think that. America, it's, it's it's we're acculturated to this as Americans because for, for, for a century and a half, the oceans protected us. Whatever else was going to happen, we were not going to get here, hit here in the homeland. And it was true. I mean, World War II, they attacked Hawaii, which was terrible. But they were never really a danger of an invasion, even of Hawaii. But the nature of technology has changed now. And the oceans do not protect us from a nuclear attack as we're seeing, you know, the North Korean people talk about EMP. I I think that's low on North Korea's list of priorities, but it's a possibility to a bio attack, to a cyber attack. Uh, We saw what happened in Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. Now I don't think that that was not a cyber attack, but an attack on critical infrastructure. You knock out the electricity infrastructure in Minnesota this time of year. And you gumming up enough so they can't get it back online for a couple of months. It is is effectively a weapon of mass destruction deployed against the American homeland. And I deeply fear that if we don't start paying attention to deterrence and strength across a broad range of capabilities, we're going to get hit. And and I'm very disappointed in our leadership for the last 20 years that they are not— making people more conscious of this in a responsible, bipartisan way. Now, we can argue about the specifics. That's the strategic thing. Remember the strategic? Mm-hmm. We can argue about the operational and tactical thing. But if you don't get the strategy right, and this is why our policy's been so reactive around the world, under under Clinton, Bush, and Obama, and now Trump, to some extent, I think he's doing much better in Asia. We've been reactive because we're not planning. So when you don't plan... You are reacting to what the aggressors do. They're the ones who have the initiative.
0: What plan would you like to see, to be to, to be? Well, clear? you know,
1: I have not yet read. Uh, I did a show yesterday, and I was just reading an outline of uh, the national security strategy. I have not read the speech, and I need to read the speech. But okay. So first you define what it is you're trying to protect. What are the vital national interests of the United States? What package of interests constitute American national security? What does that mean? You have to give some granularity to that, right? And then you say, okay, uh, what are the tools we need over time? What do we have to nurture over time? What capabilities do we need to defend those interests? So to put some granularity to it, and the president said this yesterday he's right, defense of the homeland against a kinetic attack or a cyber attack is a vital national interest of the United States, right? The right of Americans to travel, around the world, trade and travel around the world, in the common areas of the world, on, on equal terms with everybody else, is the vital national interest of the United States. Every time our shipping has been substantially preyed upon, and everything we've gotten into a war. You know what a vital national interest is when you see what a country has defended, what it has to defend, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I would argue also that in this day and age, preserving an acceptable, reasonably stable equilibrium in important parts of the world, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and you can argue about that, is important because when it spins too much out of control, the other interests get threatened. This is why if there's one president of the United States, whether you like it or don't like it, who wanted to get the United States the hell out of the Middle East, it was Barack Obama, right? Much more involved in Asia. He wanted us out, right? But when ISIS threatened to take over everything, you remember when they were on the run? Obama had to go back in, didn't he? So that's the reactive you're speaking. That's, that's it. yes, it was, he was reactive. But that's a sign that a vital interest was staked. Because even though he didn't want to, he had to. Trump doesn't particularly want to be in the Middle East. But we keep getting pulled in because there are interests. It's not to build democracy for other countries. Sometimes that's a tool that you use. But it, this is the level of discussion we need to have, see? So the American people understand, what, tell, why should we spend all this money in the military? Well, it's, it's to keep you from being attacked and to protect your economy, because if we can't move and travel, this is the danger in the Far East. If the Chinese get too, att- too, too great a hegemonic control, I tell you what they want to do. They want to control who can trade travel ship in the East and South China Sea. And then they will use it to hurt our economy. So we can't let them do that, okay? And a fascinating thing is you you see the bipartisan, very different presidents, but but all of them in different ways moving to protect those interests, which tells you that they're vital interests. Mm-hmm. And so then again, you look at uh, you look at what tools we need. Well, over time, we need alliances because we don't want to bear the whole burden ourselves, right? We need to act. Uh, we, we need to move at the forefront of events. We want to defuse risks before they grow to a point where we might have escalating armed conflict, right? That requires us to be involved. That's what I mean by American leadership. Moving proactive. You can't manage risk passively. Mm-hmm. If you're a diabetic, you got to manage it, right? you got to be proactive. And then we nurture tools of power. We Presidents need options. And the military is the is the is the foundation of all our tools of power. That's why we need a strong armed forces over time. But you also need, ec- and the presidents right about this, economic power. You need d- diplomacy. You need robust intelligence collections. Now, when we get we get to second or third order questions, we're going to disagree. We need robust intelligence collection, but does that mean we want the metadata system? Because we have to balance that against privacy. Fair enough. But the basics, the strateg- the strategy, what are the ends, and what are the highest order means? I think whenever I talk about this, I don't get a lot of people jumping down my throat. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been on, I'm, a, I'm about to be on my seventh advisory. I'm, a, I'm the king of advisory commissions <laughs> and national security. Yeah. And all of them, I mean, obviously very bipartisan. That's how they're structured. They're evenly divided. And we've pres- I've never been on one that hasn't presented unanimous reports and said very meaningful things.
0: Do you feel like it's moving in the right direction now,
1: or well, I like it's not I like, like to a be? lot of what the Trump administration has done. I really do. I do think again, and it's because I don't think the president, like his predecessors, I, I think he's had, he, he didn't have an adequate conception of the job going in. Neither did Obama, I guarantee you. Okay, neither did Bush, and I think he's learning it. And he's getting better. But this is one of the crucial things only the president can do is set the strategy for foreign and national security policy. Now, he should do it in a way that takes into account the need for bipartisanship. Okay. And there are ways of doing that. It's much more difficult for Trump because the country is so divided. Mm -hmm. But I, I like a lot of what he's doing. Yes, he's got to get the military rebuilt. Dave and I talk about this.
0: If you like what he's doing, does it concern you, granted it's one year in, to see the approval rating at 35 percent?
1: Sure. I mean,
0: I'm concerned about also
1: what it means for the other members of my party. On the other hand, I, you know, uh, this, there is a natural ebb and flow to American politics. And the voters, especially since they have a very low view of Washington, which means if they perceive that one party controls everything in Washington— there's a natural tendency on their part to say, oh, wait a minute, I got to do something about that, mm-hmm. which is why the midterms. I mean, look, look See, at the last three, yeah. six when I, you know, but also Ten. then look at 10, look at 14. Mm-hmm. The only one that wasn't the case was 2002, really. And that was because nine eleven caused people to rally around Bush. So it means if you're the party in power, you need to pay even more attention to what the voters are thinking. You need to have a clean, crisp message that's based on reality. And you need to have message discipline. And we haven't had that. And I don't, I mean, Trump is not the only problem there. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, we've had failures there along a lot of lines. So, but let's see what, you know, what happens. I think the economy is going to get better. I think this tax bill is on balance, a good bill. And if the, if the Congress will attend to the real needs of the people, do the defense, do the infrastructure, and and and, and start focusing on ideas. Um, I think things can get better for the party in the time to come. We'll know, I think, what the trend's going to be by late spring, probably early summer.
0: I want to get your perspective, your story, really, on your faith. Yeah. Um, your father was Jewish, uh-huh. and your mother was... Was a Christian. Christian. Neither one of them practiced. Okay. Uh,
1: they were not... Neither one of them, you would say, is religious people. They both had a conception of God. So I was not raised in any faith, much less a denomination okay. or a sect, sect of a faith. Okay. okay? Uh, we The only time I ever went to church was when somebody on mom's side got married or buried. And the only time I went to synagogue was when somebody on dad's side got married, buried, or bar mitzvahed. <laughs> which was, you know, for somebody who had no background in it, was, I mean you know, to go to a ceremony where people are speaking Hebrew. It was really quite interesting. Um, so I never, I never paid much attention to it until I got to college. And then I began a process over time. Cause I, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them personal. I'm just investigating.
0: Studying religion specifically. Is that what you're well, your reference to? Or studying yes, both but, Judaism and Christianity? But I started
1: off with the Bible. Okay. Okay. Uh, because that's, uh, the under the underpinning of the culture of which i was a part i mean you know we if if i'd been in an islamic culture i probably would have started reading the quran and uh, i found it striking i read it as a young lawyer would read it and i found it had a very clear and consistent message that rang interesting through to, to me.
0: read it at that point when 22 three, 4 years old
1: yeah mid 20s okay. probably uh, and i was drawn to the to the person who is the central character particularly of the new testament uh, Jesus. And he just, to me, just exploded on the path. If, if he were a fictional character and he's not, okay, that's my faith, uh, he'd be the greatest fictional character ever created. And every time I read about him, I see something different in it. Uh, <clears throat> I was drawn to the fact that Christianity is founded on an assertion of historical fact that is capable of being proven or disproven. It is founded on the assertion that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay? Now, he lived and died at a uh, the, at a time of recorded history at the crossroads of two very sophisticated civilizations. Three, if you count the Hebrew, Roman, Greek, Hebrew, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that is an assertion that is capable of proof. I was fascinated by that, and I reached the conclusion um, that he was raised from the dead. And if that's true, if the resurrection happened, okay, then it validates his claims about himself, right? And the logic of that appealed to me. The logic I would argue with anybody, and have talked with people many times about this, is bulletproof. It's the premise you can contest,
0: mm-hmm. okay? The so, logic being, just so I make sure I follow A, B, and C. The logic being, if he existed, and he existed, it didn't prove. We history, know that from secular history, yeah. That if he did indeed. Re- Ray, was risen from the dead, that therefore...
1: Then his claims about himself are true. Okay. And Christianity rests on that foundation. It was, if Jesus' claims about himself are true, then the basics of the rest of it follow. Now you get different denominations arguing about baptism and all the rest of it. And so I did not approach this. A lot of people think of faith or religious faith from the standpoint of a church or a temple or something like that, or a mosque. And what are the teachings of the organization? I just didn't approach it that way because I was not raised in that, and initially was not comfortable in that. Uh, it took me a while to get used to going to church. <clears throat> I approached it from a very personal, as a very personal investigation, and it's my view, particularly with uh, Christianity, that um, that's what God wants. I mean, He wants everybody takes that journey or fails to take it on their own. And they do it in their own way. Now they're all approaching the same truth. It's not. A, it's not. A, it's not everybody can believe what they want, um, but uh, everybody does it their own way. And uh, I also think that that one of the central teachings of Christianity is that God is a personal God. He wants to be known. He wants to be known personally, and that's one of the reasons Jesus came. Um, when he was. Uh, on the night before he died, he was talking to all his apostles. This is recorded in the book of John. And one of them says, Philip says to him, because he's talking about the, Jesus is talking about the father, which he did a lot. And uh, Philip says, show us the father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you for so long? I mean, three years to that point. And you don't know yet when you've seen me, you've seen the father. He was somebody you can touch and talk to, right? Uh, and God values relationships. First and foremost, our relationship, our vertical relationship with him, and then our horizontal relationships. Um, and all of that appealed to me enormously, and I just came to the conclusion it was true. I mean, that, which to me, and I know others have different views, mm-hmm. okay? But to me, that's the reason, the basis. I mean, we're dealing here with the greatest issues of existence, right? So you want to rest your set of beliefs on what you in good faith think is true. Now it's very comforting. Ultimately it's tremendous. It's eternally comforting, but there are parts of it that are very challenging, but whether it's comforting or not, you want to rest the foundation of your life on what you think is true. Mm -hmm. And
0: that's, why I was drawn to it. I have a variety of questions coming off of, of your answer there. I, I in in my research, I, I read that you were driving along. Yes. Well, this I'd, is this is accurate. Okay, I didn't know if this was like some just random story, but this is okay. So go to the police. Okay, the story. so
1: so the Bible teaches that there is a point where uh, you need. I'm saying it's a journey that you take, and there's a point where you need to decide that you that you believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And that you are going to trust him for your life, both your eternal life and your life here. You are going to trust him rather than yourself. Okay. So, during in this process, I had reached the first point. I believed it was true, but I I had not made the decision of the will to let go. To to give him the due that he was owed based on what I believed about him. Right. I mean, if if you believe somebody is God, he he wants to your best and that he's died for you, then you ought to trust him, right? Rather than yourself. And so I was listening to a, actually a, a program on a Christian radio station with the um, Latin American evangelist named Luis Palau, who's a very, I've met him since then, very warm, wonderful guy. And at the end of it, he he was asked by the host, he said, look, why don't you pray what Christians call the prayer of salvation? It's no, There's not any specific like, Thing, but it's basically a prayer to ask God to save you. Say, tell Him you trust Him and ask Him to save you. And He said, anybody who's who wants to can uh, can pray long. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do it. Uh, and I did. I pulled off the highway and did. And there's an essence of this which is transactional. I mean, which is, okay, you 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 trust your soul, your eternal life, your destiny to Jesus. You believe He died for you died for your sins and, and, you know, your crimes, really, against the moral law. And uh, then God says, okay, he paid the price for you so you don't have to pay it. And hereafter, when I look at you, I see my son. So this is why the Bible says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay? And again, you see the sense of relationship, the desire to know and to be known, the the love and the desire to be loved. Not that God needs, God doesn't need anything, right? He's perfect, but it is his desire and sovereign purpose. And so I, I just, every year I live with it, and it's been 30 plus years now, I just see more beauty in it and more comfort in it. Although there are times it's hard. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, because... Um, you've made a decision some people
0: understand and don't understand you know I, I i this is personal but it relates to our discussion so i have a three-month-old um i was raised catholic went to st louis U high jesuit education uh went to st gabriel's grade school st louis U high believed i recall sitting my freshman year at st louis U High, i think how in the world could anybody not believe in god and i don't know what happened over the four years but I remember sitting there my senior year going, how in the world could anybody believe in God? I know the Jesuits don't want to hear this, but that's what happened. Right. <laughs> so my wife and I, she's Lutheran, I'm Catholic, at least we both were raised that way, our son is baptized on Sunday, and it meant a lot to both of our parents. Mm-hmm. And my mom sent me an email yesterday, which I don't believe she knew was going to be discussed with a former U.S. senator, but here we are, that she said she really she knows that I'm not religious right now, but she really hopes that a lot of good things that have happened in my life that she hopes, she believes that that was because of prayer, and she really hopes that I find God again. I guess, for lack of a better term, and I I live by, I try to live by what I believe, if, if memory serves, from my Catholic upbringing, which is the Golden Rule, which mm-hmm. is love thy neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that simplifies it for me. What I've found to be adverse, now I realize this isn't your uh, denomination, but growing up Catholic and in what. Took place with the catholic church yeah. with priests that's tough to to remedy because i did i didn't i wasn't necessarily abused but there were priests where it's, you got done with confession he wanted a hug and you look back on that and you go what was that about you know you're in second grade uh and then also i feel like now i hear you senator reason out how you arrived where right. you are <laughs> and it's so whether i agree or disagree it's your own personal thing but it's clearly legitimate right it's cl- you're not running for office this is how you feel oh yeah I Plus, feel which like, I would
1: never—and maybe we can get into this. I mean, I hope, God forbid, that I would ever, for a political purpose, distort the faith or or the teachings of, of Jesus. Those I were mean, the words that, that, that were
0: just about to come out of my right, mouth. I feel like, in a sense, Christianity has been either Americanized or hijacked— for purpose of winning office by some, and I really am turned off by them. Yeah, I never, I, well, I'll address that in
1: a second. Let me just say that um, I understand your disillusionment with the religious authorities you grew up with. We have the same thing on the Protestant side of the house, of course, you know, uh, major figures who get caught in immorality or something like this. And again, it, I think, because my focus from the beginning was on the founder not on the church. Okay. So I would just say to you personally, I, that if if you want to measure the teaching of Christianity, the gospel against the life, you're entitled to do it, but it's the life of the founder. Mm-hmm. See, it's, it's Jesus's life. His life will measure up. And remember he warned, they all warned the apostles, everybody against false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. So the fact that those things happen, in my view, doesn't disprove what that what the Bible says is, is true. In fact, in in a way, it's a validate, because they predicted it. Now, why God permits, I'm, and I, I we don't want to get too far into theology, I understand. But, um, so I would just say it as a person, I understand it. It was easier for me, because I was not brought up to respect any particular religious. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, I... I I think I had a missionary say to me, and I thought this was beautiful because people ask about different faiths and denominations. he said there's there's m- many ways people reach up to God, but the Bible teaches there's only one way he reached down to people through his Son, but everybody's reaching up, everybody's trying mm-hmm. to get to him, mm-hmm. right. I thought that was beautiful. Look, the view I took from the beginning because I became a christian uh really. Uh, shortly before I got elected to the legislature, so from the time of my first office, I, I was very new. I was not, I was not experienced in it. I, I absolutely, had a horror of of dragging uh, my faith, much less Jesus Himself, into politics. He did not. He explicitly rejected becoming an earthly king. Uh, and I had a horror of people saying oh, I don't like Jim Talent's politics, therefore, I'm not going to investigate the claims of Jesus. Ooh. no, <laughs> I would go. Now, I did, and this may have been things you've seen in my record that caused you to want to ask about this. As a public figure, there was interest in me, and so I would get invited to churches or Christian events where I would give my testimony, which is what, you know, Protestants, my right. experience coming to know Jesus And I did that certainly, but I did it as a Christian who they were interested in because it happened to be in politics. I never wanted to use that. And I would get questions sometimes from people. I got one in Southwest Missouri one time at a men's breakfast. How can you be a Christian? Not this. How can anybody be a Christian and a Democrat? I went, oh, and I just stepped on it. I just said, no, no and i and i would say that if somebody asked me and you get that sometimes in this, uh, you know people who interested in the social justice movement and coming from an evangelical point of view i don't know how you can how you can be a christian and disagree with what no 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 god's primary point of reference is eternity that's his perspective and if you don't understand that then you're not going to understand you're not going to have the right scale of values in approaching all these questions right one of the only things I tell people is the Bible is true. You're going to live forever. Okay? Well, that's All of nice.
0: that's, that's great to know. You're <laughs> going you're, you're to live forever,
1: right? So if you just say, okay, if that's true, and I understand everybody has to decide for themselves whether it's true, then that, that sort of changes how you approach things here, doesn't it? Yeah. Because this is a very short period of time mm-hmm. compared to the arc of your whole life, right? And God's primary concern is the rest of it. So, but anyway, that was always my approach. Now, I, Marco Rubio said something in the last campaign I thought was very good. I may have said this. I'd thought it. Because you get the question, how does your faith affect your politics? And truthfully, I believed what I believed about policy. Well, I mean, I was a young man, so it wasn't long before, but for years before I became a Christian. What my faith has done, I hope, is made me a better person. Okay, so I was referring before about Le- the first requirement of leadership is is to want to serve. Well, Jesus did say that. He said, if you want to lead, you have to serve. Okay. Uh, I never referred to what Jesus said. I wouldn't, and I never justified my policies in religious terms. I mean, I can't, I, I didn't want to do that. Um, because I'm going to be the senator, the governor, if I get elected, of everybody. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't like it if somebody of different faith than mine was running for office and said, oh, I'm justifying all my policies based on my faith. I would go, wait a minute, I don't have to share your faith, right? you got to represent everybody, and they're going to disagree with you sometimes, but you have to come from a standpoint, you know, where you can, you can show them why you think what you believe is better for them.
0: I think, in closing, a lot of people who would consider themselves, whatever the case might be, agnostic, atheist, Jewish— Democrat, liberal, right. will listen to you today and go, you know, I don't agree with everything where he's coming from, defense, whatever the case might be, but he certainly can reason out why he feels the way he and he seems like a good man who is interested in the greater good. I wish this guy would get back into politics. What would you say to those people? Oh, well, I, I really,
1: uh, it's very unlikely that I ever run for elective office again. I I don't, I said before, I don't like to play anyway. So I don't like to say, because for one thing, as I said before, I have a deep level of concern that we are running too high a risk of something really bad happening.
0: And that's in reference to?
1: National security in particular. Mm -hmm. Now it could have an economic, the, the really bad aspect of it may be economic, depending on if we get hit and how we get hit. Well, if something like that happens, you know, I think it's all hands on deck. And again, I'm not saying that you know, I can save the Republic. But if I, if I felt under those circumstances, there was something then I would consider it or some big thing like that. But I, I don't have the the fire in the belly to run the way I I did. And I, and I don't think it's fair to your party and your coalition to run unless you do. Mm -hmm. Okay. I made very open about the fact there are certain appointive offices I would like to have. Right. That was Uh, talked
0: about what last December.
1: Right. And, uh, so it's not like I don't want to go back into public office under the right circumstances, mm-hmm. but I don't feel, I mean, I don't, I, I don't feel crestfallen over that not happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to, but I, 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 as you know, cause you're an influencer given what you do. I mean, you, you can influence things from the outside.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I, I think I have done that and, and we'll continue. I mean, I, you know, I do, I do love this country. I have a, deep, abiding. I mean, I fully understand the people who criticize the United States and talk about the aspects of our history that have been a problem, but I just, and, and, I, and I never will, I believe, as Lincoln said, that we're the last and the best hope for all mankind, and I, 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 earthly hope, okay? And I, I think our example, I mean, what we've done around the world, we're a very unique country with, a uni- with unique peoples, Okay, because we're a number of different people. And uh, I, I want—I do want to continue. Help. I can't imagine ever not trying to help America in one form or another.
0: So there it is. Former Senator Jim Talent with us on the Tim McKernan Show. Really curious what you thought. Uh, and you're more than welcome to send me an email. Post on our Facebook page. Tweet at McKernan Show. It's the Tim McKernan Show on Facebook. You have the TMA fan page on Facebook. Or you can email me at Um I'm curious because I know there are a lot of things that I would imagine he said that a number of you will disagree with uh, from a policy standpoint. Um, from being very pop, uh, positive on President Trump, if the approval rating is 35%, then the math would tell you. Now I realize it's probably higher if I had to wager in, in the Midwest. But... Uh, either way that a healthy number of people would disagree with what he's saying. And a number of people had to be thrilled to hear him speak as highly as he did about president Trump. Um, I enjoyed the religion discussion and I always try to provide some, um, behind the scenes, so to speak in these intros and outros. And you never know if a guest is kind of like, all right, we've done an hour. That's enough. Don't go. But so I, I said, I would like to get into your faith and religion, and politics, and he was he was all in. And that's, I think, that wound up going 15, 20 minutes. And I enjoyed that discussion. Because he approached the discussion of religion from an analytical standpoint, which is certainly not the way most religion is discussed. Uh, so it was almost like a scientific analysis from his perspective of uh, Christianity, at least the time of Jesus Christ, and um, all that was going on in the world at that time. And then it was a respectful disagreement. Uh, but also, I think a respectful discussion. And the thing that stands out most to me is how he said, I mean, if anything, it like stopped him in his tracks. How he hopes he never did, because he certainly never wanted to use religion to try and be uh, a tactic to win votes. And that's the thing, that's one of the things that really is a turnoff for me. That, that, that in some capacity, people think if you're voting for one party, you're voting for God's party. And if you're voting for the other party, uh, you're against God. I mean, but I I know a lot of people think that way. And that's just something that I am absolutely not on board with. So I enjoyed that discussion and um, and just super grateful to uh, Senator Talent for coming in and spending the time with us that he did. Uh, We're super grateful to you for listening. And uh, if, you, if you're just getting on board with the show, I mean, I kind of take for granted that people have been listening, but I, I mean, reality is that's not the way it is. A number of you are finding out about it. You can go back, first off, from a political perspective. Uh, Jack Danforth, the former United States senator, uh, has been a guest on the program, one of our earlier guests. Uh, and that's an hour-long conversation. Um, Ed Martin, who you can see on CNN, has been a guest. Uh, Alderwoman Megan Green has been a guest. And, uh, and and we're looking forward to uh, more from the political world as uh, we're hoping to have Jason Kander on the program here in the near future. Uh, and then from a sports perspective, uh, Missouri fans, Gary Pinkle has been on. Mike Kelly will be on. Uh, NFL fans, uh, former St. Louis Rams fans, Isaac Bruce and Tyoka Jackson have been on. Cardinal fans, John Mazalak has been on. Blues fans, Chris Kerber has been on um and uh st louis media fans dave glover lux and mike bush will be coming up and larry connor's a recent guest also so a, a diversity when it comes to uh the different industries and areas of expertise we have had on the radio program and i'm probably forgetting some off the top of my head as i just kind of do this from memory but it gives you an idea what we have and, and a lot of these interviews are evergreen in other words you can listen to gary pinkle from a couple months ago and we're just talking about his career and a lot of the things he dealt with And those issues are still relevant now as they were when we sat down with him a few months ago. Uh, My producer, John Seymour, has done an incredible job bringing this guest. I'm not doing this. This is John Seymour's work. And uh, Nick Yale has done a great job with the the video and the subtitles on social media to make people aware of the show. And I'm very, very grateful for them and very grateful to all of you who have found the show and gotten on board, perhaps, uh, with the show. And maybe some of you are starting to, to get more and more comfortable with podcasting, which to me is... Not really uh, the future, it's the present. And once you're familiar with it and comfortable with using it, it's like, why would you do anything else? So we are uh, grateful to you for supporting it. And we just ask you that you support the sponsors the Home Loan Expert.com Studios, James Carlton, Carlton Insurance Agency, State Farm Insurance Agent, and Gateway Buick GMC, which is located at I 270 McDonald Boulevard online at st. Louis Buick com. And whether you're looking for a new car in the St. Louis area or you are looking for a pre-owned car, Gateway has a selection that will be hard-pressed to be outdone by anybody else. And from a service standpoint, they pride themselves in the awards they've received for their service. If you need to get your car in and out quick, fast, in a hurry, also with a concierge service, Gateway has 37 service bays to serve you. Go online at stlouisbuickgmc.com or check them out for yourself at I-270 and McDonald's. Donald Boulevard. Thank you to Senator Jim Talent. Thank you to executive producer John Seymour. And thank you to our media assistant and inside STL digital coordinator, Nick Yale. And of course you, the audience for listening to the Tim McKernan show. We've enjoyed it again. Look forward to bringing you Mike Kelly, Mike Bush, Dave Peacock, and Bill DeWitt III here in the coming weeks for everybody at the Tim McKernan show. I'm Tim McKernan. Thank you for listening.
1: We conquer cancer for the mom-to-be who is out of treatment options, for the doctor who
0: has a brilliant idea but needs research funding, for the people who faced cancer head-on and climbed incredible heights while they were with us, for the children who celebrate the end of chemo. We conquer cancer for all who have been touched by it. Conquer Cancer accelerates breakthroughs in research and care for every cancer, every patient, everywhere. Join us at conquer.org.